0: Well, good morning. My name is James Stoner. I'm professor of political science at Louisiana State University and was a visiting fellow last year in the Madison program here at Princeton. It's my privilege and task to moderate this morning's panel and also to uh, welcome you this morning to the second day of the Madison program's conference on faith and the challenges of secularism. Although... When I think about the panel name, I keep forgetting whether it's Faith and the Challenges of Secularism or Secularism and the Challenges of Faith. (laughs) Um, I want to uh, take uh, a moment, if I could, on behalf of the Madison Program, to thank our co-sponsors today. That includes the University Center for for Human Values here at Princeton, the Center for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Providence Forum. So again, thank you for co-sponsoring this conference. Yesterday, our speakers approached the challenge of secularism from the perspectives of cultural anthropology, epistemology, and political participation. This morning, we turn to philosophical analysis and we're honored to have as our keynote speaker Professor John Finnis. Professor Finnis divides his time between Oxford University where he is professor of law and legal philosophy, and Notre Dame Law School, where he is the Bielcini family professor of law. He is the author of Natural Law and Natural Rights. That's, uh, it's the title of the book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> <and> <laughs> of Aquinas, Moral, Political, and Legal Theory, and uh, many other books and numerous articles. He served, or presently serves, on a number of committees studying bioethical issues, sometimes under the auspices of Catholic bishops in the Vatican, and he is also a fellow of the British Academy. To divulge a fact that until recently was known mostly to a handful of my fellow Louisianians, Professor Finnis is also in his spare time co-authoring a study of literary, religious, and political intrigue in the courts of Elizabeth I and James I of England, one small part of which providing the key to a hitherto undeciphered poem of Shakespeare, appeared last spring in the Times Literary Supplement. His paper this morning is titled Secularism, Law, and Public Policy. It's my pleasure to welcome John Finnis.
1: Well, I'll begin with some points which have already been touched on well by Eric Gregory and Jean Elstein yesterday and the day before. The secularism that I'm speaking of differs widely from a healthy secularity or respect for the secular. The word secular is a word minted by Latin Christians, it denotes that which is not divine, sacred, or ecclesiastical. And its resonances are by no means always negative. In the Vulgate Bible, secularis, secularis sometimes signifies neutrally the world of time rather than eternity and the daily life of any society, though sometimes it means pejoratively those matters that distract us from realities and dispositions of lasting worth. In Aquinas, too, the term secular often has no negative connotations. So, for example, he'll say that in matters that concern the the good of the political community, Christians should generally obey the secular authorities rather than the ecclesiastical. This Christian differentiating of the secular from the sacred is, I think, one instance or aspect of wider processes often called secularization. I'm thinking especially of processes which involve the extension of human understanding and control over fields of life formerly so inaccessible to human science and technology that it seemed reasonable to try to manage them instead by prayer. Christian faith encourages secularization of this kind by insisting on both the transcendence of God and the intelligibility of the creation, with its consequent accessibility to science and technology. Secularism, as I'll use the term, is something different. Not that it's some entirely new thing. In in its essentials, it seems to me to be what English philosophers and theologians, Catholic and non-Catholic, in the Shakespearean age called atheism, a word whose use in their characteristically broad sense was often, of course, polemical, but but often not merely polemical. And Plato, without giving it a label, clearly identifies secularism as a topos worthy of very careful analysis and critique in his The Laws. As a cluster of dispositions, all significantly similar, as dispositions of soul and character, even though shaped around one or other of three propositions, each logically quite distinguishable from the others. That there is no God, in modern terms, atheism in the strict sense, or that no God is concerned with human affairs, as we might say, deism, or that any such divine concern with the human is easily appeased by a superficial piety and requires no demanding reform of human conduct. We might say liberal religiosity. The urgencies of Plato's concern about this cluster, like the frequent invectives of Elizabethan philosophers against the atheism around them, Can make us wonder whether secularism's cultural dominance today is really greater than it was in Plato's Athens. I put the question only to set it aside. Secularism, then, is characterized by its negations. There is no God, or no God whose providential ordering reaches into our world, or no divine offer of a human life transformed for the better on demanding conditions. The practical significance and effect of these negations is substantially the same, and again it's a negation. Our lives are not lived answerably to the divine wisdom. Rather, the meaning of our lives is found and exhausted in their achievements and failures in this tangible world, and in that sense, if not all others, the world of experience is closed off and complete in itself. In these negations, the secularist may well add, there is positive benefit. Living our lives, especially our social lives on this basis, eliminates the risk of religious wars, the oppressions of of competing religions, and the other follies and oppressions of a monopolistic religion. Save for this last kind of benefit, secularism as such, defined by its negations, has, I'm going to suggest, no orientation or contribution to the common good. And that benefit itself, though real indeed, must be understood with balance. we have to contend with many other sources of war destruction oppression and damaging folly besides fanatical and or false religion so there remains open the possibility that what is needed to overcome avoid or minimize these risks is rather some non-secularist view of the world of human beings and of our responsibilities and that what is needed to minimize the risk of injustices done in the name of religion is rather a sound religious doctrine about the true content of human common good, including the good of those rights to religious freedom which are entailed by a high conception of the duty of each individual to seek the truth about the divine and live according to its wisdom. It should go without saying that these needs of ours are no ground for judging that any religion is true, or any form of secularism false. It should also be kept in mind that logic, that in logic, secularism's negations do not commit the secularist to any further denials or negations. Still, logical necessity, though a necessary constraint, is not the motor of scientific or any other kind of rational inquiry. Rationality's norms, though strongly urging us to seek explanations, ...don't include the rationalist's metaphysical-logical principle of sufficient reason. My diagnosis of secularism's consequences doesn't point to entailments. Rather, it presupposes that in asserting its negations... ...secularism in any of its forms manifests a violation of the rationality norms... ...which properly followed guide one to affirm the existence of a divine creator... ...to anticipate communication from that creator and to make the historical judgment that the creator's nature and purposes were truthfully disclosed in the easterly trade routes of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. Presupposing that judgment, or that sequence of judgments, about secularism's defective adherence to rationality norms, my diagnosis of secularism's significance for the common good seeks to point out how secularism's defining and on that presupposition unreasonable negations are supported by and support further positions which deny or set aside or overlook or treat as other than true important truths about the common good. Between entailment on the one hand and mere happenstance on the other, there are intelligible connections of the kind or kind-suggested in the historical observations with which I prefaced a recent discussion of mine of Aquinas' proofs of the existence of God, I said in my book, uh, Aquinas, everyone is aware how close is the fit between, f- between first order and third order positions, metaphysical and moral positions. How smoothly, for example, the thought that everything is no more than material particles evolving by blind chance towards eventual motionlessness fits with the thought that nothing really matters save getting pleasures while we may. And though the natural sciences themselves have a self correcting critical method and integrity, it would be rash to assume that the tendency to rationalize one's wrongful choices plays no great part in the genesis, defense, and successful diffusion of wider so called scientific worldviews, not to mention loquaciously irrational postmodernisms. Since the days I went on when religious positions like Aquinas's were socially prevalent, thought about such matters has generally followed a clear historical course. After the Protestant rejection of Aquinas' conception of the ways in which divine revelation is transmitted, the Enlightenment rejected the very idea that there's been any such revelation – In doing so, it, the Enlightenment, confidently maintained an idea of nature and of political entitlements held by by virtue of moral laws of nature and of nature's God, as it's put in the Declaration of Independence. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, many came to think that nature, natural law, natural or human rights could be retained as truths and rational foundations, quite independent of any rational affirmation of divine existence, nature, wisdom, and activity, affirmations to be removed from public discourse and education into the realm of private so-called personal belief and unbelief. In the later 20th century, however, public discourse and education are shaped ever more obviously around the belief that every so-called value judgment, every moral, social, or political judgment directing choice and action is subjective, relative, personal, autonomous, right and wrong, our predicates to be treated as mere expressions of emotion, emotionally motivated decisions, and resultant social conventions. So I went on, finally, the question of right and wrong, and thus of truly inalienable human rights, is quietly replaced by the question, who is in charge? And by the determination to be amongst those who are in charge, who hold power, set the agenda, and possess the fruits of autonomous personal and group dominance. The moral, political, and juridical language of rights and responsibilities becomes the cloak which such self and group will needs. For two reasons, needs for two reasons. To mask purposes which, if frankly expressed, would arouse resistance from competing wills and to satisfy an uneasy conscience. Uneasy for, although the publicly assumed and educationally promoted beliefs about theoretical truth treat practical reason as devoid of foundations other than human sentiment and interest, each person's practical reason, in fact, retains the capacity and the directiveness which contemporary beliefs deny it has. Well, that was one rapid sketch of secularism's consequences, and I now want to try to amplify and refine that a bit with a more specific reference to law and public policy. Secularism as such, as I've said, has no conception or vision of common good. And its defining negations make radically uncertain at best, or unintelligible at worst, a sound conception of whom the common good is common to. That's secularism's deepest relevance, I think, to law and public policy, which can't be reasonably oriented save towards the truly common good of a political community, a community which also has its proper place within the human community as a whole. Moreover, secularism's negations discourage any attempt to surmount, by reasoning to intelligent judgment, the challenge of radical scepticism or its equivalence in practical or pragmatic indifference to the claims of justice and other requirements of morality. Of course, it's true and it's important that the first principles of practical reason and the first principles of morality are all intelligible and rationally affirmable without first taking a position on whether there is any transcendent ultimate source of reality, meaning and value. In that respect, morality or natural law theory are like physics. But just as the fact that there is physics and the fact that physics has its laws raises the further question beyond physics, why there is a physically structured and intelligible reality with these laws, so the analogous question arises in relation to the principles and norms of practical reason and about the human flourishing to which they direct. And whereas denials that there is a transcendent source of the world's physical reality and intelligibility leave reality and the laws of physics highly palpable and impressive in their efficacy and resistance to human willfulness, denials that there is any transcendent source of meaning and value in human existence and opportunity tend to unravel the structure of practical reason and corrode its efficacy. For practical reason directs us towards states of affairs which should, according to practical reason, be made to obtain, but do not obtain. Imagination, memory, desire, aversion, and inertia all direct us towards other attractive states of affairs, alternative to those picked out by reasons considered fully reasonably. If practical reason considered fully reasonable has no transcendent ratification, no further intelligibility than that it is what we inexplicably find as one aspect of our psychic structure. Its place in deliberation, then, is understandably subject to usurpation, displacement, by alternative sources of directiveness, the passions, in all their raw or spiritual, or rationalised and conventionalized forms. Their constitutional ruler loses one of its titles to legitimacy and allegiance. The pungent Nietzschean apothegm asserts that if God is dead, everything is permitted. And though it's psychologistic, not logical, as is signaled by the logical absurdity of saying God is dead, the apothegm, on that plane makes, I think, a fair diagnosis of practical reasons, loss of intelligibility and practical reasonableness's diminished attractiveness if a secularist denial or discounting of divine wisdom and providence becomes one's working assumption. That's one reason why, lacking any energetic and constructive answer to the challenge of radical moral skepticism, secularism as such has no sufficient counter to the seductive attractiveness of, say, Nazism, which with a cold eye adopts the Humean enlightenment that reason is the slave of the passions, and counsels that one live by the passion to be amongst those who are in charge and can enjoy the benefits of being in charge. Within the ruling group, the race, the nation, the economically advantaged class, Virtues of justice, love, compassion, forgiveness and mercy can extend to all members, but those outside are outside. To be used if need be, crushed or eliminated if they threaten, ignored if neither useful nor a threat. National Socialism. Remote? I'm I'm not too sure. What is it that, in principle, I ask myself, restrains the pragmatism and Nietzscheanism espoused by, say, Judge Richard Richard Posner from the forms which Nietzschean secularism took in interwar Germany, except certain conventional forms of American culture that were shaped by non-secularist ideals of humanity and have subsisted in a culture not hitherto subject to demoralizing defeat, revolution, expropriation, o- occupation, and wide pauperisation. To be sure, one can and should recall that, as I've said, each person's practical reason, conscience, in fact retains the capacity and directiveness which beliefs such as Posner's deny it has but the Posnerian beliefs which deny that practical reasons have the objectivity of divine wisdom or any other wisdom undercut the ultimate and, in that sense, primary source of practical reasons directiveness. Another aspect of secularism's weakness in the face of a national socialist politics is its loss of the idea of the intellectual rational soul as the organizing form of the body and life the integral reality of each individual human being. Secularism's defining unwillingness either to contemplate or take seriously creation ex nihilo typically draws upon materialist assumptions, but that unwillingness also powerfully reinforces materialist denials or neglect of the spiritual soul, whether as manifested in the freedom and the intelligibility-giving character of divine Creativity and providence, or as manifested in the working of human deliberation and action in and upon the material world by practical understanding, intending, reasoning, and choosing, or as manifested in its character as form of the body, perhaps most vividly in the human faculty of speech, that astounding forming of material powers and organs by intellect and will understanding and choice, such that by voice and tongue, the material word is imbued with the speaker's meaning, judgment, and intention. And with the setting aside of the idea of the soul as form of the body comes the loss of any account of what it is about us that makes us all equal. Hence the central thesis of my paper this morning, Secularist incapacity to account for that equality or therefore to affirm it as an authentic truth makes secularism in principle an inadequate and rationally inappropriate, indeed inapt, basis for law and public policy. Of course, in a given cultural context, context, the word secularist may be used with any number of possible meanings along a spectrum, with at the one end atheism and at the other a refusal to declare any one religion the true religion and ratify it as such by law and public policy. So a constitution like that of India may declare the state secular, meaning something like, there shall be no establishment of religion, taking that phrase with all the uncertainty that Americans are familiar with about just what it means. My focus in this paper is on the underlying position or spectrum of positions about the existence, nature, or relevance of God, and on the relevance of one's position on those matters for the foundations of political life and morality. I'm not concerned here with particular constitutional arrangements or their interpretation. Well, in the preceding words, I've sketched with a broad brush some reasons for thinking that secularism has no claim to be the proper basis or framework for political or legal discourse and deliberation, and that it could have no claim to be the proper basis other than, short of, a compelling demonstration that belief in a provident and demanding God is groundless. Against secularism's offer to leave behind the menace of religious war, I recalled some reasons for fearing that secularism leaves us in principle confronting the menace of national socialist or analogous racial or class ideologies. My phrase in principle stands for a reminder that any particular instance of secularism may be advanced under the forms and within the cultural environment of concepts and institutions and expectations all formed by a society's or civilization's relevantly non-secularist past. Hence, no doubt the harsh and even perhaps intolerable sound of my references to Nazism. For the secularisms within our immediate experience are self-identified and intend to be liberal. So in the next part of my paper, I review again with a broad brush some characteristic arguments from this stable, liberal secularism, for the thesis that political and legal discourse and deliberation should be strictly secular. Late in the sequence of expositions of his theory of political liberalism, John Rawls denied that his pivotal concept of public reason is to be taken as a concept of secular reason. There is a sense in which this denial of his is correct. Public reason is defined by him as reasons drawn from an overlapping consensus and not from any comprehensive doctrine, religious or philosophical. So on its face, the idea of public reason is neutral between religious and non-religious doctrines. Both alike are excluded from public reason and required to be excluded from deliberation and decision on political matters just because they are comprehensive and not because they are religious. But there remains an important sense in which Rawls's tardy disclaimer, public reason is not secular reason, is incorrect for two reasons first while it's clear that every religion is comprehensive in Rawls's sense and each of its parts each of its doctrines for example is therefore comprehensive it is by contrast by no means clear what makes a philosophical position or position advanced by a philosopher a comprehensive politi- philosophical doctrine or even part of one Rawls for one thing seems to think that he can propose and promote his ideas of political liberalism and public reason over some hundreds of pages which look like and are sold as philosophy but which if the book is not to be self-refuting cannot be being proposed as parts of a comprehensive philosophy. So wide tracts of philosophy on his account get in under the wire that excludes all of religion. Second Since the theory that deliberating and voting is illegitimate unless following the public reason of an overlapping consensus, since that's a theory that cannot be proposed for acceptance on the ground that it's true, a motive for acceptance which would have to rest on some appeal to some comprehensive philosophical or religious doctrine, this theory, the very core of so-called political liberalism, stands in urgent need of some motive for accepting it. And the motive actually given in the book Political Liberalism pertains to religious divisions, not philosophical ones. For these reasons, and also because Rawls assumes throughout that a hierarchical expansionist, or we might say evangelical, religion of conversion, such as Orthodox Christianity, could not and cannot conceive a basis for religious toleration, let alone for religious liberty and strict limits to the enforcement of religious doctrines by public power, for all these reasons, Rawls's denial that his public reason and thus his theory of illegitimate reasons for political action are secular, his denial that they're secular, cannot be taken as the last word. The thrust of his theory is secularist. What is the theory? Well, its name, political liberalism, makes a novel use of the term political. Decisions, institutions, and so forth are properly political, Rawls says, only when made on the basis of public reason, and public reason is not a matter of truths of theoretical or practical reason, but rather is the set of propositions accepted in an overlapping consensus of all reasonable people with all their contradictory opinions about the true nature and point of human affairs and that contradictoriness or more politely pluralism of reasonable opinions about important matters is Rawls thinks a wholly inevitable and proper concomitant of democratic freedom having thus denatured and reoriented the concepts of the political and of reason and of reasonableness itself Rawls proposes his fundamental criterion or moral ideal of democratic legitimacy. According to that criterion, citizens voting on a controverted issue involving fundamental human rights vote illegitimately if they try to promote the truth about who has the rights and how far the rights extend. They vote legitimately only if they set aside their opinions about the truth of the matter, indeed of any moral or political matter, And vote in accordance with their assessment of what opinions about the right are within the overlapping consensus of so-called reasonable people, including, as it were necessarily, people whose within consensus opinions about the right the voter judges, often perhaps correctly, to be false. A vote cast on the basis of deliberation and judgment about the truth of the matter is illegitimate, says Rawls, because it violates the fair reciprocity of never imposing on other people any restriction or burden other than one we reasonably think that citizens offered them might also reasonably accept. Well, that's the heart of Rawls's political liberalism. Is it a reasonable theory? Is it reasonable to propose as strongly normative a moral ideal of democratic politics on any ground other than that ideal's truth, particularly if one's proposing this ideal as the basis for one's exclusionary demand that a large number of citizens, Christians among them, have an obligation not to base their contribution to society and political life through the legitimate means available to everyone in a democracy on their particular understanding of the human person and the common good. Indeed, One may ask, is this proposal that the political be a zone in which one looks always to consensus and never to truth, even coherent? Confronting the category of what he calls rationalist believers who contend that their comprehensive religious or philosophical doctrine can be fully established by reason, Rawls sets aside his own restrictive norm of legitimacy in deliberation by bidding us treat such a contention as simply mistaken. So the views of such believers, like other views whose unreasonableness Rawls more or less covertly assumes, are not allowed to affect the overlapping consensus. And if they're outside the consensus that exists, if they're discounted, cannot be legitimately acted upon politically even by those who hold them. Rawls's undefended, sceptical and secularist assumptions are premises which political liberalism needs in order to ground it, or, if it's proposed as a position needing no grounds, to defend it against obvious, sensible objections. Above all, doesn't any political doctrine, one may ask, like Rawls's undermine fundamental rights? by subordinating them to a sheer consensus and thus to a lowest common denominator or to a too low highest common factor. Denying or neglecting the imaging of God by each human being from conception and even under gross disablement, the practical unthinking secularism of consumerists or careerists and the proud elitism of Nietzschean aesthetico theoretical secularism tend to converge in a consensus for ignoring the true rights of some human beings, and not just the very young. Even when Rosians are not themselves secularists, they subject the freedom and equality they exalt to an unjust principle of limitation, and not merely by the normal inertia of any political process, but on principle. Rosians, like Dworkinians, speak of the freedom and equality of citizens, rather than of human beings. Isn't this, one may wonder, a sign of their subjection of human rights to a political theory that would make of the prejudices of the beati Procedentes those fortunate enough to be well off and determined to keep it so, to make of those prejudices a criterion for rejecting as illegitimate, even when democratic in method, the reasonable and legitimate political efforts of those who understand human equality and fraternity as predicated on the status of children of God, in whose image each is conceived. The theory of political liberalism is said by Rawls to stand on the basis provided by a theory of justice. If so, I think it falls. For the thought experimental conditions under which Rawls identifies the principles of justice, the so-called original position in which choosers select principles behind a veil of ignorance about their own beliefs and preferences, though with a carefully edited compendium of knowledge about human affairs and a rather bourgeois disposition to risk aversion, these conditions are indeed, as Rawls claims, conditions under which interpersonal bias is substantially eliminated by the choosers' fear that they might, in the real world to which the selected principles will apply, be among the losers under any principle that, to put it broadly, benefits some at the expense of others. More precisely, fails to maximise the position of the worst-off class of people as much as possible. Eliminating the bias of partiality or favouritism, the thought experimental conditions do guarantee the principles selected will be just in the sense of not biased by self-interest or self-preference, or more frankly, individual or group selfishness. But it's simply fallacious to assume that because a certain principle of action, restraint, or distribution would not be chosen in the original position, it cannot be a principle of justice in the real world, in which we do know or reasonably believe much more than behind the veil of ignorance. And that fallacy is the very heart of the book of Theory of Justice. Moreover, in the real world, people do know or can readily know that commitment and fidelity in marriage, for example, is a true good. That having children as fruit of one's marriage and honoring them by educating them towards truth are a true good. One can also come to know that part of the truth towards which they should be educated is that we are all children of God and have good and sufficient grounds to believe that God has promised to make available his household forever. Principles of political life that ignore these truths overlook these children's rights. And principles which set the truths aside, other than under duress of one kind or another, make injustice to such children all but inevitable. The fear that if one's polity were to interest itself in such matters, it might make the wrong choices, and I might be the loser, the fear that Rawls makes decisive in shaping his vision of a good and just society, is a fear that has no a priori rational claim to priority over the cautious but lively hope that the organised help of others will provide indispensable assistance in securing the milieu or social environment for bringing one's children to a maturity of virtue, and the resolution to help one's society provide such help through the assistance of law, an institution, law, which in all its forms can always be abused and so might well not survive Rawls's "I might be the loser" test, if that could be and were consistently applied. But the remarkable fragility of Rawls's arguments for his political principles in the book the Theory of Justice* in the book *A the Theory of Justice* is replicated and doubled up in the book *Political Liberalism*, which officially rests on that fallacious general argument and tacitly presupposes, I think a fallacious fallacious specification of that general argument by an arbitrary prioritizing of risk aversion. In the case of the second book, the prioritizing of an aversion to the risk of religious war. To this, the book Political Liberalism adds, I suggest, its own peculiar defects in argumentation. Public reason and overlapping consensus are each defined by reference to the concept of Propositions to which all reasonable people can be expected to agree. All reasonable people can be expected to agree. The phrase, or its virtual equivalent, is repeated scores of times from end to end of the book. Never once does Rawls attend to the phrase's radical ambiguity, which I think he needs to exploit to give his position the appearance of plausibility. Expected can be normative or predictive, Normative when we say you're expected to show up on time and behave politely to the guests. Predictive when we say that, what with the traffic, I'm now expected at one o'clock. Officially, the phrase, all reasonable people can be expected to agree to, should not be normative in Rawls' argument. If it were normative, it would presuppose that there is some standard other than consensus, a standard of truth or inherent reasonableness by which to assess the agreement and the reasonableness of the person's party to it, and of their willingness or unwillingness to assent to the propositions in question. And so the book would lose its point. Citizens and philosophers alike would be looking to the standard, to the truth about the questions arising in public life, rather than, as the book proposes, to the overlapping consensus as a consensus. But Rawls can't easily admit, on the other hand, that his phrase, can reasonably be expected, is merely predictive. Since then, everyone, or everyone who has some reasonable views, would have a veto power over the content of public reason by declining or failing to assent to widespread views reasonably or unreasonably. When you try to interpret Rawls's text by lining up its uses of the phrase and assigning them to the predictive or the normative interpretation by reference to the context, you finish up with two columns, each about equally long, with some passages where it's simply obscure. In the end, as I've said, I think Rawls is obliged to tacitly admit that he does use his own private standards to assess what views are reasonable on their merits so that reasonable people may reasonably be expected, that is, ought, to assent to them. The existence of those rationalist believers in a comprehensive philosophical or religious doctrine whom I've already mentioned... Whose stance is utterly marginalized in Rawls's text, despite being in fact the core of the philosophically and theologically guided Western law and culture, the existence of these believers obliged him to concede this normativity. On Rawls's account of these rationalist believers, they're people who think that some truths about human rights and basic justice are more important than the maintenance of social peace and stability the values made supreme by Rawls's risk aversion and emaciated conception of human good. On their own account of themselves, they are people who think that a social peace and stability attained at the expense of these truths about human rights and basic justice is in many, if not all, contexts, inadequate even as peace and stability, and is in all contexts deplorable, a condition not to be celebrated, but rather to be overcome. So rationalist believers, believers in natural law and natural rights, if not also in a revealed confirmation of the natural law, have no reason to accept any part of Rawls's distinctive conception of politics or political liberalism or public reason. They, we, after all, have there our own conception of public reason the classic concept of natural law and natural rights, such as you find in Thomas Aquinas, for example, just is the concept proper concept of public reason. That is, of positions which can and must be argued for or defended in open discourse with anyone willing to accept the rational constraints of discourse itself. Positions whose principles satisfy the Rawlsian demand for reciprocity because they are accessible to everyone of developed rational capacities, even if actually denied by most people in such and such a place or time. Principles and positions which would, under ideal epistemic conditions, be actually accepted by everyone. Long before Richard Rorty those who held this conception of public reason have been aware that this is nothing to boast of for it's the merest common sense that in Aquinas's words, when you are debating with people who accept no religious authority, your arguments must be from natural reasons. That is reasons accessible to anyone, whatever their beliefs about religion or divine revelation and reasonable believers in divine revelation also know that it's unreasonable and, in the last analysis, irrational to propose, as Rawls does, a split between one's public actions and one's private judgments about the truth about what people are and are entitled to. All public action, voting, judging, legislating, enforcing, whatever, is also, and most essentially, private action. A public realm is impossible without the allegiance of individuals, an allegiance that must be given and maintained for reasons which seem to the individual truly valid. So nothing can be sustained as part of public reason without the private reason of individuals ratifying it as, yes, reasonable, and reasonable not just in some weak sense, but in the strong sense of something that makes costly and dangerous effort and fidelity worthwhile and often mandatory in the face of every kind of temptation and resistance, inner and outer. The reasons for the sometimes dangerous and always somewhat demanding choices involved in bringing law out of anarchy or tyranny and upholding this public policy, let's have law, and others in the face of enemies and subversives, the reasons for this can be found in the foundational moral principles which identify and draw out the implications of basic human goods and the conditions for their realization as common goods, that is, in the lives of everyone. And the same principles will exclude as unreasonable and immoral every attempt to redefine us and everyone by reference to the interests and prejudices of those with power to make their attributions and withholdings of personhood prevail, or the power to decide to kill some sorts of person because they would be better off dead, their life being not worth living a so full exposition and defense of the truth of these principles and of these acknowledgements of human personhood, an exposition capable of showing these truths full entitlement to prevail over outer and inner resistance and temptations to deviate, such a full exposition and defense requires the holding of positions about freedom of choice, the significance of self-determination, the demarcation of the human from all other animal species by the radical capacity for intelligence and freedom of action, freedom of choice, the reality of that radical capacity, even in those whose bodily condition blocks the expression of the capacity and the substantiveness of the human goods of life, friendship and practical reasonableness. All these positions are, to one extent or another, unwelcome to secularism because holding them does not cohere with the materialist assumptions that underpin the denial or neglect of divine creation Ex nihilo, from nothing. So, as I began by suggesting, secularist denials or neglect of spirit as the condition and living principle of human bodiliness make arbitrary, speciesist, and vulnerable the acknowledgement of radical human equality, without which, without which acknowledgement, no set of laws or public policies can integrally serve the common good. Or respond to all the demands of elementary justice. I think it was no mere happenstance that, in the 1993 edition of Rawls's book on liberalism, virtually the only practical example of public reason in action was his claim that anyone who thinks that unborn babies have a right to life against at least the mere whim of their healthy and mature mothers is unreasonable and undemocratic and is promoting a public policy which is illegitimate and should be excluded, not only from public discourse, but from law and public policy, as well as private intervention. With Ronald Dworkin, my colleague, a practitioner of arguments for liberalism of a fragility comparable to his own, Rawls actively contributed to and signed the Philosopher's Brief to the Supreme Court in the assisted suicide cases, arguing that an unequivocal permission of choosing the deliberate and intentional killing of an innocent person be introduced for the first time into American life. Crucially, the philosopher's brief argues that the law and the state may not take one side in the essentially ethical or religious controversy, unquote, may not take one side in the essentially ethical or religious controversy about whether it is or is not a terrible injury and irreversible harm to people in certain circumstances not to be allowed to choose to be deliberately killed rather than sedated and nurtured so as to escape those conditions which they judge disfigured their lives, for example, with indignity focused upon upholding a liberty of certain competent persons to give effect to their own side-taking in the ethical or religious controversy by killing themselves and have another assist them or do it for them, the brief pays no attention whatever to the fact that unless our law and state takes sides and takes the right side in the ethical or religious controversy about whether people in such conditions are or are not injured by continuing to live because their condition is one of real indignity and their life is not worth living, whether, that is to say, a person in that condition has a lebens leben, unless our state takes the right position, we will have set off down the trail blazed by the enlightened secularist doctors and lawyers whose sophisticated urgings found a response in the German euthanasia programs for the mentally disabled of the late 1930s. Similarly, unless the state takes the right side in the controversy about artificial reproduction of human beings, we will move from being a community with embryo banks already, but kept out of sight and out of mind, to being a community kitted out with slave beings, mature and immature alike, whose humanity cannot be confidently denied, but whose services for body parts, labour and other forms of consumption will be prized, marketed and governmentally promoted. Unless we undo our taking the wrong side in the ethical and religious controversy about whether it can be right to slaughter the inhabitants of whole cities and vast regions In nuclear retaliation, we will remain a society whose resistance to terrorism lives out a lie. Still, if there are theologians who, as Geoffrey Stout reports in his fine new book, move from the broadly true premise that the citizenry's common discourse on ethical and political topics suffers from incoherence in the absence of commonly held theological assumptions from that true premise... To the conclusion, quote, that we should all therefore accept a common stock of theological assumptions in order to restore our shared discourse to coherence, if there are such theologians, their position is, I think, uncommonly silly. It will also be just as silly if such theologians move to that sort of conclusion from the premise which I have been proposing, namely that all forms of secularism are a threat to our common good and an inapt basis for law, public policy, and public discourse. There are no reasonable grounds for accepting any assumption or other position about the nature of reality, other than the considerations that give reason for judging the position true. If it were truly reasonable to judge that there is no God or that God is absent or careless we could still look to the truths of a natural reason, whose reasons, however, would be forever in need of more explanation than could be found. We could have no confidence whatever that our law and public policy would long remain oriented by those sound principles of practical reason, though they might. But in any event, that indigence and need of ours would not be ground for affirming God's existence, providence, or expectations of us.
0: We have three commentators this morning on Professor Finnis's paper, and I've asked each to aim for 15 minutes in his remarks, and... Drawing on a distinction that uh, Professor Finnis made, I'll add that I expect them, with all the ambiguity of that, to uh, agree to do so. Um, uh, And then after that, we'll invite a response from Professor Finnis to the commentators, and then open the floor for questions. We'll we'll go along until uh, 12.15. That's allotted to us. Our first commentator this morning is Francis Beckwith. Associate Professor of Church State Studies and Associate Director of the J.M. Dawson Institute for Church State Studies at Baylor University in Texas. A prolific author, Frank's most recent books are Law, Darwinism, and Public Education, The Establishment Clause and the Challenge of Intelligent Design, published earlier this year, and The New Mormon Challenge, responding to the latest defenses of a fast growing movement. He holds M.A. and Ph.D. degrees in philosophy from Fordham University and a Master of Juridical Science from Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. He, too, was a visiting fellow at the Madison program last year, and I'm pleased to welcome him back.
2: Thank you. Because I have only a few minutes to comment on Professor Finnis's outstanding paper, I would like to explore... Only one of his conclusions, namely that in a liberal democracy, secularism, these are his words, has no claim to be the proper framework for political or legal discourse and deliberation, unquote. What I want to suggest here this morning is that not only can secularism not account for the rights, freedoms, and civic purposes its proponents claim only it can best secure, as Professor Finnis has aptly pointed out, but that secularism is a jealous, clever god whose pretensions to neutrality mask a cluster of beliefs about knowledge, reality, and philosophical anthropology that have become an orthodoxy that will tolerate no rivals. Although the proponents of political liberalism instruct us that what they offer is a framework unconnected to any comprehensive doctrine or worldview, they seem to me to be in precisely the same position as Yogi Berra when he offered the now famous aphorism in response to a query about driving directions, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) I want to suggest that you can't take a fork, you must take a road, and that political liberalism is in fact a road, marked by the signs of public reason, though paved with a particular cluster of secular beliefs about the order and nature of things, the extent and limits of acceptable public discourse, and who... And who is not a member of the political community, none of which can be identified as an obvious deliverance of reason, of course, John Rawls, as Professor Finnis has pointed out, denied that his view of public reason is the same as secular reason. for he held secularism to be as much a worldview or comprehensive doctrine as a religious point of view. but as Professor Finnis has argued in his paper, given that Rawls's notion of, com- of comprehensive doctrine seems to exclude only religious ones and not philosophical ones, and that the rationalist believer is simply mistaken about the demonstrability of his doctrine, public reason really amounts to secular reason, and thus gives secularism a privileged status in our political regime. My modest goal in these brief moments is to show why Professor Finnis is correct in his negative assessment of secularism's privileged status by offering an argument for the proposition that a liberalism committed to fairness and rational deliberation cannot be methodologically secularist. Let me repeat that. A liberalism committed to fairness and rational deliberation cannot be methodologically secularist. In order to accomplish this, I will first define methodological secularism and then make my case by critiquing a philosophical argument that gained some notoriety when it was first published nearly a decade ago. I define methodological secularism as the view that the only sorts of claims that may count as acceptable public reasons are those whose warrant depends on premises, whose plausibility is connected to an a priori commitment to a collection of beliefs, which always manage to carry just enough philosophical freight to tip the balance in virtually every instance in favor of liberal policy perspectives at the consummation of one's reflective equilibrium. (coughs) These beliefs include notions of rationality, autonomy, and liberty that implicitly deny that our laws may reflect a realist view of moral knowledge, an essentialist view of human nature, and that the purpose of political liberty is so that persons may freely pursue the good. As an illustration of what I mean, consider the now famous argument offered by Judith Jarvis Thompson in the Boston Review in 1995 and which John Rawls recommended as an example of his version of political liberalism properly applied to the contentious issue of abortion. In fact, um, Rawls cited it in the second edition of Political Liberalism in that footnote that Professor Finnis mentioned in his paper. Thompson concedes that the anti-abortion position on the moral status of the fetus from conception is reasonable, but denies that reason requires that pro-choice advocates embrace it, for the pro-choice view that the fetus is not a person, at least during the earliest stages of pregnancy, is at least just as reasonable as the pro-life point of view. Consequently, no one side of the issue really wins the day. Given this state of affairs, Thompson defends the continued legalization of abortion in the United States based on three ideas she summarizes at the end of her essay. This is Thompson speaking. Quote, First, restrictive regulation severely constrains women's liberty. Second, severe constraints on liberty may not be imposed in the name of considerations that the constrained are not unreasonable in rejecting. And third, that many women who reject the claim that the fetus has a right to life from the moment of conception are not unreasonable in doing so. Unquote. It seems to me that for Thompson's purposes, the most important of these premises is the second, which affirms that severe constraints and liberty may not be imposed in the name of considerations that the constrained are not unreasonable in rejecting. But in order for this premise to be acceptable, according to my understanding of Thompson's point of view, it must be a premise that is unreasonable to reject when applied to the debate over abortion. But that does not seem to be correct for at least two reasons. First, Thompson presents no argument for why pro-lifers would be unreasonable in rejecting this premise. In fact, she merely stipulates the premise's truth and thus provides no argument for it. Consequently, given the absence of a reason to support it, and given the fact that its truth is not self-evident, it is prima facie, not unreasonable, to reject it. Second, Thompson wants to procure the law to severely constrain the liberty of those who oppose abortion, for she is offering an argument that makes it almost always unjustified for pro-life citizens to employ the resources of their government to protect beings that they are not unreasonable in believing are full-fledged members of the human community deserving of our protection. But these citizens are being constrained from influencing and shaping the laws and practices of their communities on grounds, namely the pregnant woman has a right to abort, that Thompson concedes that pro-lifers are not unreasonable in rejecting, for their position entails the denial of those grounds. That is to say, the reasonableness of the pro-life position on the protected moral status of the fetus, which Thompson concedes entails a constraint on the right to abort, is reason enough, according to Thompson's view, to reject her call to constrain the liberty of pro-life citizens." Although she claims that opponents of abortion ought not to say, these are her words, that reason requires us to accept the pro-life position for that assertion is false, unquote. Thompson does not hesitate to imply that reason requires us to apply the second premise of her argument to pro-life citizens, even though rejecting her suggestion is not on her grounds unreasonable. Thompson does not seem to appreciate the true scope and implications of conceding the reasonableness of the pro-life position. Consider, for for example, her claim that some anti-abortion activists engage in fraud. This is a quote from her article. There is already far too much falsehood in the anti-abortion movement. A recent newspaper photograph showed an anti-abortion protester holding a placard that said abortion kills. That much is true. But under the words was a photograph of a baby. The baby looked to me a year and a half old, counting the ordinary way from birth, not conception. The message communicated by that placard was that abortion kills fully developed babies, and that is false, indeed fraudulent. Exaggeration for a political purpose is one thing, fraud quite another, This is a strong accusation to make, and one that opponents of abortion should not take lightly. However, it seems to me that Thompson unwittingly reveals in this rhetorical flourish a misunderstanding of the anti-abortion position. The protester holds the view that Thompson herself maintains is not unreasonable that the baby in the placard is no different in nature or in moral status than our prenatal self from the moment of conception. For the protester, he or she is offering the baby's picture as a guide to help and extend and inspire the imagination of those who need images and props to start on the path of moral reasoning. It seems that this tactic of protest is no different than pro-choice activists holding up placards with coat hangers to symbolize symbolize the dangers of illegal abortions prior to Roe v. Wade, even though such abortions constitute an infinitesimal percentage of those procured in the pro-Roe years. But even if Thompson is correct about the equal reasonableness of the pro-life and pro-choice positions in the status of the fetus, it does not follow from that fact that the pro-choice position must be the one that is reflected in our laws. Thompson, however, maintains that because the arguments for the contrary positions on the moral standing of the fetus are equally reasonable, and because the liberty of certain citizens hangs in the ballast balance, that is, the freedom and liberty of pregnant women, we should err on the side of a contested view of liberty. She writes, quote, Our side says the fetus has a right, excuse me, one side says the fetus has a right to life in the moment of conception. The other side denies this. Neither side is able to prove its case. Why should the deniers win? The answer is that the situation is not symmetrical. What is in question here is not which of two values we should promote, the deniers or the supporters. What the supporters want is a license to impose force. What the deniers want is a license to be free of it. It is the former that needs justification. But this clearly begs the question. For Thompson has to show, rather than merely stipulate, that in the debate over abortion's permissibility, reason requires us to conclude that her secularist view of liberty is the good that is at stake. Or to conscript Thompson's language for our purposes, it is not unreasonable to reject the notion that we should err on the side of a secularist view of liberty when all sides in the abortion debate hold equally reasonable arguments. Thompson's case is flawed in another peculiar way, a way that actually provides a compelling reason to prohibit abortion. If I understand her case correctly, it is possible that abortion may result in the unjustified killing of a human entity who has a full right to life, given that the pro-life position on the nature of the fetus is reasonable and may, in fact, be true. But given this state of affairs, it would seem that society has a moral obligation to err on the side of life and, therefore, to legally prohibit all abortions. After all, if one kills another being without knowing whether that being is a human person with a full right to life, and if one kills that being for reasons that would never never justify the killing of a being we know is a human person, and if one has reasonable though disputed grounds to believe that the being in question is fully human, such an action would constitute a willful and reckless disregard for others, even if one later discovered that the being was not fully human. It is difficult to believe why anyone would want to advocate that such a maxim become a fixed point in any nation's understanding of liberty. Those who are familiar with Rawls's work will by now have recognized that Thompson relies heavily on Rawls' principle of reciprocity, to which Professor Finnis made mention in his paper. It is the notion that, quote, our exercise of political power is proper only when we sincerely believe that the reasons we offer for our political action may reasonably be accepted by other citizens as a justification of those actions." Unquote. But if we are to take this principle seriously and apply it more liberally than Rawls or Thompson had envisioned, we now have a reason to reject Rawls's understanding of public reason, the principle of reciprocity itself. After all, Rawls is asking religious believers to restrict their conduct in the public square by requiring them to have public reasons, as he defines that term, but many religious people, as well as others, believe that they have good reason to reject Rawls's understanding of public reason because, among other things, he defines it in a way that gives an unfair advantage to methodological secularism. Therefore, because Rawls's definition of public reason may reasonably be rejected by other citizens as a justification of an exercise of political power, that is, restricting the sorts of reasons that are permissible in the public square, that on the principle of reciprocity, Rawls's definition of public reason is not proper. In his paper, Professor Finnis cites the Philosopher's Brief, a document whose signatories include both Rawls and Thompson. As we have heard, that brief asserts that the government and its laws may not take one side in the essentially ethical or religious controversy on the rightness or wrongness of physician-assisted suicide, because that would mean that the state would be embracing a comprehensive doctrine about the meaning of life And such a state action is inconsistent with politically liberal democracy rightly understood. But this understanding of liberal democracy, whose scrutiny of policy proposals relies on methodological secularism, amounts to an argument stopper that forbids a priori alternatives that are inconsistent with a controversial cluster of beliefs that are committed to a particular understanding of the good, the true, and the beautiful. But proponents of such a posture cannot really be committed to fairness and rational deliberation if positions that could be true cannot, in principle, be reflected in our laws. Thus, a liberalism committed to fairness and rational deliberation cannot be methodologically secularist. Consequently, Professor Finnis, in my judgment, is correct that in a liberal democracy, secularism has no claim to be the proper framework for political or legal discourse or deliberation. Thank you.
0: Our next commentator, hardly an afterthought, but added to the program after it went to press, is Father Richard John Newhouse, president of the Institute on Religion and Public Life in New York City and editor of its journal, First Things. Ordained a Catholic priest in 1991 after more than two decades as a Lutheran clergyman, Father Newhouse is a truly prolific writer who, in addition to writing um, monthly a column of about 20 pages in First Things, is the author of many books, including The Naked Public Square, The Catholic Moment, and most recently, As I Lay Dying Meditations Upon Returning. His many honors include receiving the John Paul II Award for Religious Freedom. Father Newhouse.
3: Thank you so much. Uh, our moderator um, earlier on uh, suggested that the title confuses him, whether it's Faith in the Challenges of Secularism or Secularism and the Challenges of Faith. Now, of course, on the program it actually is Faith in the Challenges of Secularism, And I expect it is the case that in terms of what we might call the sociology of knowledge of how people actually construe the power relationship as to where the initiative is and as to where who is on the defensive, that the title as it is given here is right, faith in the challenges of secularism, secularism appearing as the threat or at least having the initiative, faith that which needs to be defended against the challenges. I would like to think that the kind of deliberations that Professor Finnis and um, uh, Professor Beckwith have uh, offered here would reverse that way of thinking about where the challenge, where the initiative rests. Uh, first uh, permit me to say that I find uh, Professor Finnis's paper to be uh, truly admirable and engaging and I learned from it. Um, it is only to be added, I suppose, that we are all in debt to uh, John Rawls, certainly, for um, he almost single-handedly, what, however implausible we may consider his argument, and um, I think uh, Professor Finnis has been charitable in not illuminating the more fantastical dimensions of its implausibility, uh, he has nonetheless almost single-handedly uh, revived, at least in uh, this country, uh, serious deliberation about the moral premises of public reason and of politics and what's generally called uh, political philosophy. Uh, Professor Finnis uh, started out by affirming quite rightly that secular is not a pejorative term, certainly not in the Christian tradition or in the Western tradition more generally, that indeed there's something profoundly secular about Christian faith. Uh, For after all, it is the world that God so loved that he sent his son, the seculum that is redeemed. Uh, And so that is the element of truth even when taken as it sometimes has been by some theologians to bizarre lengths as in my friend, Harvey Cox's Secular City of 65 years ago, uh, 1965 rather not quite 65 years ago, getting there quickly, uh, as are some of us. But uh, that, that that truth is very, very important. And what we're dealing with, I think, when we're talking about secularism, is what I would call exclusive secularism. That is a ideological position that one is not to permit into the category of public reason, what qualifies as public deliberation and decision-making, anything that touches upon or seems dependent upon or derived from uh, a transcendent source, transcendence with its antithesis and imminence usually in a materialistic Form, And that is an ideological decision, that kind of exclusive secularism. It's not a philosophical conclusion. It's not a theological conclusion. It's not a rational conclusion. It's an ideological decision. And again, one can even sympathize why many people make that ideological decision. And I think it's important for us to appreciate this because they see no alternative to it other than authoritarianism and arbitrariness and theocracy, and even religious warfare. And so that they are entrenched in this ideological commitment out of uh, an historically not entirely uninformed fear, dread, of the possibility that public discourse might be sucked back again into some kind of authoritarian uh, abyss, uh, Christian and more specifically Catholic, of course. I mean, all the language of the exclusive uh, secularist ideology, uh, Reformation, Enlightenment, etc., is all posited against that overarchingly threatening alternative, which is Christianity and more specifically in its Catholic form. So we, I think, appreciate uh, John Rawls' contribution uh, in terms of uh, provoking and uh, uh, generating a good deal of useful reflection, such as we have uh, seen exercised this morning. And we appreciate the ideological character of the secularist commitment in its exclusive form and understand the fears, uh, indeed the terror that uh, drives that to a very significant extent i was uh, impressed by professor finnis's i think rather original at least um, for me original dissection of the marvelous phrase about what reasonable people may be expected to accept uh, the word expected as he very nicely developed it in its normative obligatory indeed even commanding uh, connotations on the one hand, and expected in the sense of uh, predictive, that there are certain kinds of people. Now, it is in the second sense, I think, of the predictive, that in a way, people like Rawls, frequently lean toward, I, I love very much, I wrote in years ago an article on Josh and Richard Rorty, and he has uh, this marvelous uh, predictive use of it, so to speak, in which he defines the political community as pretty much people like us, which is to say people like Richard Rorty. And, uh, but then he asks, well, what happens if you have somebody who come, comes along, and he for some reason, uh, Ilex Ignatius, as uh, Ignatius Loyola is his example. I don't know why. But uh, <laughs> in any event, uh, he said, why do you have an Ignatius Loyola come along in, into our company? And he wants to know what is the truth of the matter about what it is that we uh, do and say and think others should do and say. And he wants some kind of foundational answer to that. And he says, what do you do with a guy like that, you know, who busts up the uh, party and... and um, well, he says, first of all, you try to josh him out of it. You know, that's, 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 joshing is very important. You try to josh him out of it. These are the kind of things we do not expect, uh, for people to be asking for. And then, if you can't josh him out of it, and, and if he just persists and is absolutely stubborn and, and a, uh, uh, pestering about this, uh, you might have to lock him up. Uh, now, this is a great theory of democracy in which you lock up the people uh, whose disagreements you find um, uh, excessively disagreeable. Um, but it is uh, all in play there in this use of what people may be expected and who counts as a reasonable person. In a recent exchange with Alan Wolf of Boston College, He said, the difficulty with Father Newhouse's position is that we secularists can accommodate his worldview, but he, by his worldview, cannot accommodate ours or us. I think he got it exactly wrong, exactly backwards. I have people who at least are informed by the development of Uh, The Western philosophical tradition, as it itself has been refracted through and enriched by and redirected in the theological tradition, have every reason to accommodate those made in the image and likeness of God with whom we may profoundly disagree if there is one thing on which the rawlsian and Rorty and if I may use the phrase Wolfian position uh, reverts again and again is to this danger of religious warfare. Um, and I would suggest that maybe uh, Professor Finnis's paper might even have been somewhat uh, more sharply critical on this, on pointing out that much that is called religious warfare, the religion factor is inextricable from all of the other factors of uh, economics, of power, of ethnicity, of uh, resentments, of a tribal nature deeply embedded in which religion, of course, becomes the symbol systems whereby people rationalize and whereby they rally the many, many factors that are in play in human conflict, whether in war, in the fullest sense of the word, or in other forms of conflict. Plus, I think it's very important to this religious warfare argument to point out that in our modern experience, uh, those who have been most exclusively secular, those who have most systematically done this, have occasioned the unleashing of rivers of blood and the piling up of mountains of corpses unprecedented in the entirety of human history, particularly those under the quasi-religious rationalization of Marxist-Leninism and, as uh, Professor Finnis points out, of National Socialism. This has been our experience coming out of this bloodiest uh, uh, century in all of human history. And for people to say that uh, compared with Stalinism, Marxist-Leninism, National Socialism, that the Southern Baptist Convention poses a major threat (laughs) to the survival of Western civilization, I think is just uh, to betray, uh, to say the least, a loss of uh, perspective. Uh, religion again is is as in the uh, counter to Alan Wolfe. It is that which provides the basis of uh, authentic peace. Why it has not always been the case, mind you, and we as Christians and specifically as Catholic Christians, must be not at all hesitant in admitting that God used a lot of that which was hostile to the church. I wouldn't say two cheers for Voltaire, but uh, God certainly can use and did use an awful lot of the enemies of the church to bring us to that point where uh, John Paul II can say, as he does say, that the church imposes nothing. She only proposes, but she proposes the truth, and the truth imposes itself. But the church imposes nothing, It has not always been so. And we can be thankful that we have come to the time in which the strongest case for the respect for those who dissent and those who are troublesome and those who are a burden is grounded most firmly in religious and specifically Judeo-Christian faith. Why do we not kill one another over our disagreements about the will of God, we do not kill one another over our disagreements about the will of God because we are convinced that it is the will of God that we not kill one another over our disagreements about the will of God. Ah, uh, it is not because we are more secular. Now, all this uh, line, of course, raises, but this would take us far afield, but into an obviously related question, and that is, yes, but what about the role of Islam in the modern world? That, of course, is perhaps uh, a candidate for the most important historical question of the 21st century, and I don't have an answer to it. We have to hope that a development within Islam comparable to not secularization, but an authentically religious theological development comparable to what has happened in Christianity and in Judaism with respect to the dignity of the person and the foundational uh, truths that undergird the continuing democratic deliberation and decision-making over what are the truths that ought to guide our life together. Uh, then perhaps, uh, and I think i got four more minutes here, um, Professor Finnis, will, if you have time and your response, I'd be interested in how you would tackle this. In your last page you say that, okay, politics can be guided by nothing but the truth and then very provocatively one might say you say if the truth were to lead us to the conclusion that there is that it is the truth that there is no god or that if there is a god he is a careless god etc that then it would have to be premised on purely secular grounds now i don't know i mean that strikes me as a rather odd use of truth and uh Perhaps the general proposition is applicable more to a society that's composed of uh, philosophers and uh, systematic theologians, a dreadful kind of society to contemplate, and <laughs> God and His kindness is spared as such a society. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, and I'd just be interested in how you would respond to this, whether you would think I am being utterly too cynical, that it is not silly as. Uh, our friend Jeffrey Stout said, to suggest that there might be theological truths, however, coherently grasped, such as the Declaration of Independence, that uh, indeed uh, there is a creator who has endowed human beings with certain rights, etc. That it's not silly that this should form what Uh, Peter Berger once called a kind of vague sacred canopy. Call it civil religion, call it whatever you want, call it public piety. Uh, It seems to me this is in fact the case in America. And when you alluded twice in your paper to how the secularist, the exclusive secularist Rawlsian proposition would not work, or if it did work, it would only be because it is still living off the capital of a past piety. I would suggest to you that that piety is not past today, in no way vestigial, that America is as pervasively and confusedly and conflictedly religious as it ever has been in its history, and in some ways more so, certainly in terms of public assertiveness, So is it silly that there be, I mean, uh, Gibbon, uh, as we all know, looked at the religions of the pagan world and he said, uh, what? He said, to the common people, these various religions were equally true, to the philosophers, they were equally false, and to the rulers, they were equally useful. And uh, is it not still the case that whether we like it or not, no matter how theologically bastardized and religiously uh, denigrated by callow utilitarianism it may be, is it not the case that living in a society, there are always going to be, and certainly in this society and perhaps more vestigially in the United Kingdom, uh, something like a Christian culture, something like what T.S. Eliot said in 1939, this is still, a, a culture is still a Christian culture until it is replaced by something else that has a name. I think it's very, very insightful. I don't think it's happened. Homo religiosus is irrepressible. And the exclusive secularists are on the defensive, which brings us back to the title of this thing, Challenges Secularism and the Challenges of Faith. The Rawlsian position was a last gasp to create an honorable enterprise of philosophical reflection about the nature of politics at just the time when the tradition of which he was part had suffered a massive plausibility collapse, collapse of its very way of thinking, signaled by, as you appropriately um, indicated in your paper, what is meant by the many-headed monster and or Beauty called postmodernism. But the question is secularism and the challenges of faith. And my last question to you is whether you would not, as someone who is capable of stepping out of the most rigorous definition of yourself as a philosopher, entertain that in real politics there are these uh, myths, images, stories powerful in their political consequence, for better and for worse, of which liberalism is one, and that that will always be the case, and that those who say, as you do, that the only thing that has purchase is that which is rationally demonstrable as true, that you and I, to the extent I say that with you, will always be in the minority. Thank you.
0: Our third speaker uh, in comment this morning is Professor Jeffrey Stout, who has taught in the Department of Religion here at Princeton since 1975. His books include The Flight from Authority, Ethics After Babel, and Democracy and Tradition, which, as I understand it, is due to be released any day by the Princeton University Press. He is co-editor of the Cambridge University Press series on religion and critical thought, and has served widely in, in an administrative capacity in his profession and here at the university uh, even for a couple years as assistant coach of men's soccer. So with, uh, no more by way of introduction, Professor Stout.
4: Any human being lucky enough to be initiated into the evaluative practices of a decent community becomes aware of the differences among excellent, good, mediocre, bad, and horrible things, acts, characteristics, and persons. But most of us spend much of our time living in a dream world of wishful thinking, rationalization, and self-consolation. A tissue of fantasies, unconsciously designed to protect our egos, blinds us to the worth, wonder, and misery in our midst. The proximate, lesser, more familiar good is easier to pursue than excellence. Sloth lulls us into resting content with mediocrity. Negligent ignorance of our complicity in horrors leaves our blissful slumber undisturbed. Each of us has a vocation to ascend into higher forms of excellence but waking up is hard to do. We typically need the help of inspiring examples to disturb our sleep. We need spiritual guides to help us see the truth about ourselves. Ethical formation is a spiritual exercise that goes against the grain of our untutored druthers. It is also a social practice in which we learn to hold ourselves responsible for our acts and commitments because others are already holding us responsible. The somewhat good, the mediocre, and the somewhat bad comprise an evaluative zone within which we often lose our moral footing, but at least we find it relatively easy to maintain our cognitive footing there. We know what we are talking about, and our explanations of that talk come comparatively easily. Most of us have much more trouble talking about the higher forms of excellence. We stutter when asked to explain the greatness of great art or the saintliness of saints. At the other end of the spectrum, the morally horrific often reduces us to silence. It takes a rare kind of excellence to speak appropriately about the Holocaust, about slavery, about the rape of a child. Sacred value, that which merits our reverence, that the violation of which is morally horrific is similarly mysterious. We stand in awe before it, tongues tied. It is hard to talk or think about it and know what we mean. Aquinas' doctrine of analogy is one way of acknowledging this. So is his claim that we are united to God as to one Unknown. So, too, was his confession after saying mass in Naples on December 6, 1273, that all he had written in theology seemed like straw. Great thinkers in other traditions have acknowledged the same difficulty in other ways. I trust that much of the foregoing credo would win assent from John Finnis. But apparently we differ over the existence of a morally perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful God who is the creator and providential uh, governor of the universe we live in. Finnis believes that such a God exists, whereas I do not. He asserts, moreover, that the norms of rationality, and I'm quoting now, properly followed guide one to affirm the existence of a divine creator, to expect a communication from that creator, and to make the historical judgment that the creator's nature and purposes were truthfully disclosed in the easterly trade routes of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. End of quote. It seems that I am one of those who, in Finnis's view, quote, manifest a violation of the rationality norms, unquote. But I appear to have company in this category. Do not most Jews also fail to be guided by the rationality norms to accept Finnis's historical judgment about divine revelation? Finnis's claims are strong and numerous, Aside from his detailed critique of Rawls, with which I largely agree, his paper contains a high proportion of assertion to argument. While I await his instruction on various theological questions, such as the problem of evil, I can only envy his confidence in what he knows That I do not share his theological confidence might be explained by my sinful pride. I have studied all of these standard arguments closely and with the conscious intent of doing them justice. But perhaps my ego, being prone, as all egos are, to self-deception, is interfering with my perception of the considerations that move Finnis to affirm the existence of God. It might also be, however, that Finnis's confidence in his theological convictions is itself inflated by pride. There are spiritual dangers and temptations then on both sides, if we should even talk in these contexts of sides. These become more consequential when a theology is called upon to function as social cement, Finnis is careful to say that the desirability of enjoying social stability is not itself a reason for committing oneself to the truth of his theology. The case, as he makes it, rests on the intelligibility theology is supposed to confer on moral and other phenomena. The social stability thought to result from having an entire citizenry accept a religion is an added benefit not to be sought directly Scruton style. But the social processes, by means of which societies explain themselves to their members, can easily be distorted. Interests distinct from a dispassionate search for intelligibility can skew the result. The socially approved explanations tend to be geared not only to rendering the moral political order intelligible, but also to consoling members in the face of misfortune, to bringing potentially dissident forces in line, and to clothing current norms and arrangements with an aura of necessity and divine approval. It is naive to expect the metaphysical outcome to remain unaffected by wishful thinking and rationalization. Group egoism is no less insidious than individual egoism, perhaps more so. Indeed, egoism at both levels can be mutually reinforcing. One way individuals console themselves is by identifying with groups that claim to be blessed with certain knowledge of moral requirements, untainted by custom and convention. The concepts of God, nature, and rationality can easily become the means a society uses to place its values, whatever they may be, beyond question. They need not be used in that way. In truth, our moral inheritance is a treasure that comes to us in earthen vessels. It is hard to know the difference between what our associates take to be true and what is true. The idea of a higher law serves us best as a reminder that, we, uh, that what we are now justified in believing by the lights of our own community might not be true. The claim that God is dead, according to Finnis, is a logical absurdity. Yet, Finnis is defending a tradition according to which a single being, wholly divine as well as wholly human, is capable of death on a cross and then resurrection, too. Now, I do not myself charge this tradition with logical absurdity. For I suspect that it is here grappling poetically with mystery rather than purporting to make everything plain. But if mystery is to be tolerated at the heart of Christian theology, why not also in a this worldly metaphysics of morals? I do not suppose that what makes a human being valuable can be put in a nutshell. As Hilary Putnam once said, any philosophy that can be put in a nutshell belongs there. (laughs) (laughs) Philosophers and theologians alike do well to acknowledge the mystery of their world. This theme runs through a book of essays on Aquinas and Wittgenstein that I have just co-edited with an Anglican priest named Robert McSwain. It is called Grammar and Grace, and it will appear next year. Finnis's favored explanation of the value of a human life is that human beings are created in the image or likeness of God. Suppose we are like God in some respect, In what does this resemblance consist? Presumably in some property that God and we alike possess, though in vastly different degrees. To use our knowledge of it as a basis for analogical speculation about God's nature, we must be independently acquainted with its human manifestation. Does not our moral experience, then, give us grounds apart from the alleged resemblance relation, to respect those who possess the property, whatever we wish to call it, and thus to prohibit actions that fail to to show such respect. Why conclude, then, that taking God out of the metaphysical picture, in the case of some particular person, deprives that person of grounds for distinguishing between permissible and impermissible acts. Why would this leave everything permitted? I would have thought that denying that was part of what the natural law tradition stood for. It is not clear that we have sufficient grasp on God's nature on the basis of reason alone apart from the gift of faith, to make the notion of God-likeness do explanatory work for us. Karl Barth, to my mind, the greatest 20th century theologian, cautions us against doing so, against thinking that we, uh, that we do. He warns against tailoring our conception of God to fit our explanatory needs, against making ourselves qua theologians, qua speculative philosophers, the masters of mystery. I wonder what Finnis wishes to say in response to this concern of a believer in a transcendent God. Perhaps in this connection he would be willing to elucidate his passing remark about, quote, Protestant rejection of Aquinas' conception of the ways in which divine revelation is transmitted, unquote. Am I right in thinking that a criticism of Protestantism is intended here? The remark seems to be made in a passage, the point of which is after Aquinas, the deluge. Again, it seems not to be secularists alone who are being rebuked. But do not Roman Catholics like Blaise Pascal and Bas van Frassen take Bart's side against the God of the philosophers? What begins as a rejection of secularism appears to lead eventually to the rejection of all that diverges from Aquinas. The circle of reasonable men continues to shrink. For Thomas like Victor White and Victor Preller, you might call them the Victorians, <laughs> who read Aquinas in a way that pulls him surprisingly close to the Protestant Karl Barth on questions of natural theology, must also be rejected, it seems, on the principles put forward in Finnis's paper of Protestant tendencies. The new natural law theory begins with what seems to be a wide circle encompassing all rational human beings. But who turns out to be fully rational besides the theorist and his religious allies? It seems to me that this question invites further reflection on the category of rationality, uh, rational entitlement, and related notions. In Finnis's eyes, it is rationally necessary that the highest conceivable instantiation of excellence is also an extremely powerful person causally responsible for the creation and governance of the universe. Now that proposition is a lot to get one's mind around. Suppose I fail to get my mind around it, whether through some fault in my cognitive efforts or because the idea itself is unfathomable or untrue. Why should this entail comparable failure on my part in tracking evaluative differences between things, events, person, persons, acts, and characteristics that I have experienced? And if it does not, why conclude that secularism, as Finnis has defined it, not as Newhouse and Beckwith have defined it, necessarily leads us to ruin. To find oneself disbelieving what the theist affirms is not the same thing as affirming materialism or conventionalism. Recre- recounting my vivid experience of evaluative differences will hardly keep a Nazi from crushing the innocent under the boot of oppression. Nietzscheans and Christians alike joined the Nazi movement. Any ideology in the hands of vicious people can be used to legitimate horrors. Look at what some people do with the just war principles that Finnis employs with great integrity and, to my mind, validity in his arguments for nuclear disarmament. Nazis are as unlikely to sit still for Finnis's metaphysical arguments as for my attempts to show that Nazism is a form of group egoism caught up in a dream world of fantasy, hatred, and fear. If you want to see how my response to the Nazis would go, look at Kenneth Burke's essay from the 1930s called Hitler's Battle. But when you read it, don't think... That I'm saying that Nazis who read Burke's essay would be likely to become Democrats. The vices and ideological commitments of Nazis reinforced each other in a way that corrupted their responsiveness to reasons. In the end, there is no substitute for successful integration into a community where virtuous people help each other stay awake. My new book, Democracy and Tradition, spends a lot of time criticizing something called secularism. It criticizes Rawls and it criticizes Rorty at some length. But I use this term in a way Finnis doesn't, I think in a way that's closer to the way Beckwith used it a moment ago, to name a set of strictures on the use of religious premises in political arguments. Read in one way, Finnis agrees with Rawls in favoring such strictures. I want to hear more about this. Rawls holds that public reasoning about constitutional essentials and matters of basic justice should proceed from principles that no reasonable person could reasonably reject. Finnis does not mean what Rawls means by reasonable. But I believe they both overestimate philosophy's ability to establish principles of public reason that ought to be the basis for all or virtually all public debate. Given that religious commitments often do inform the positions that citizens take on important public public questions, it seems to me that we all have a stake in knowing what those commitments are. I would encourage citizens to reflect on the virtues of practical wisdom and civility and then express their religious commitments as they see fit. This is the central argument of my book. But I would also urge them to count their interlocutors' religious commitments, theistic or not, as rational until proven irrational. And now I'll close. P.F. Strawson once described metaphysics as a realm of maximum pretension and minimum agreement. When it comes to metaphysical questions, it seems to me it's wise to scale back not only the confidence with which we make commitments, but also the confidence with which we declare one another's commitments rational or irrational. That otherwise reasonable and decent people disagree on religious issues should give us pause before we presume to declare whole groups simply irrational. Two people who disagree on especially difficult questions might be behaving responsibly in taking the positions they do, given their own circumstances the circumstances in particular of their upbringing and the different forms of evidence uh, brought their way by life's experience. We do well to keep this possibility in view when addressing our fellow citizens. And while we're at it, we should remind ourselves that our own outlook, secularist or theistic, may be distorted by pride and prejudice. It is human nature to notice the speck in our neighbor's eye before we notice the plank in our own. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you. I promised that uh, next Professor Finnis would be invited to make a response, and I promise him that if he chooses to be pithy, <laughs> I won't put him in a nutshell, uh, so that we would then uh, be able to open the floor still for about 10 or 15 minutes of questions for his opinions. Well,
1: it's, uh, it's a fine challenge to re- respond, especially to Jeffrey Stout's very rich and provoking remarks, and to do so having just uh, experienced uh, them for the first time. (laughs) Uh, uh, It's uh, it's certainly right to warn against pride and the dismissal of whole groups uh, of people as uh, irrational. And uh, my difficulty is of uh, seeming, to, uh, seeming to make such condemnations simply by proposing uh, what I believe to be uh, justified by, by argument. Uh, my remarks about uh, Protestantism in the Protestant view of revelation uh, in the little sketch of, of history... Uh, that I quoted from my book on Aquinas, certainly imply a criticism of the various Protestant conceptions of of revelation. They don't imply the dismissal of Protestantism as simply irrational. My remarks uh, in the paper itself about uh, secularism in its various forms as manifesting incomplete fidelity to the norms of rationality are implied in any judgment such as I make that God exists, that uh, God is of such and such a nature and that God has revealed himself in such and such forms. But they don't imply that Uh, the failure to make those judgments manifest simple irrationality. They invite uh, an inquiry, if that's one's special opportunity and talent, into the psychological causes, the cultural blocks, the occasions which render the following of rationality norms fully, difficult for particular people, including oneself in earlier phases of one's life, if there were times, as there were were in my case, when one rejected those same judgments. But for my part, uh, it seems to me life is short and one must proceed uh, with the questions themselves. And in my own case, leaving to one side the inquiry into what it was in one's makeup or one's culture's makeup that uh, rendered the grasp of the truth, the full truth, difficult or, in a given case, uh, practically impossible. And so I try to get on with the argument uh, and expose the argument to public view of course the exposure of the argument to public view can't all be on one occasion. The arguments are many, Uh, the objections are many, the problems to be overcome rationally in pursuing the argument to its conclusion are many, and in a short paper one can only deal with what one can deal with. So if I'm dealing with the problem of the consequences of secularism for law and public policy, one can't... uh, the existence of God or offer one's arguments for the existence of God or offer one's arguments for the judgment that such and such a view of the way in which revelation is to be expected and has occurred is a superior judgment about those ways than alternatives. We can't do that. Uh, in that, in that. To that extent, Geoffrey Stout will have to wait uh, a lot longer for uh, the explanations that he said he's waiting for. I sympathise uh, strongly with his his uh, objection that that uh, there seems to be a problem about why taking God out of the picture leaves everything permitted. He took very strenuously my observation that the proposition God is dead is a logical uh, absurdity and asked why not admit into the category of secular discourse like Nietzsche's a a category of mystery, such analogous to that which is admitted into into Christian theologizing, both natural and and revealed. Uh, But the observation that God is dead is a logical absurdity is is a very simple and uh, straightforward one. the very idea of God is of some being such that it could not cease to be, could not die, and that, of course, is well well understood by Nietzsche. So the the, the observation that this is a logical absurdity is simply designed not to dismiss, not to dismiss, but to indicate that something else is being proposed by Nietzsche, as something with which uh, I associated myself, though, though cautiously. the the thought that psychologically uh, the denial of the transcendent God whose death Nietzsche had proclaimed, whose non-existence he was affirming, leaves the truth and seriousness of both moral principles and, and doctrines and norms and the nature of the human such that we can be affirmed to be all equal leaves all that uncertain and unstable, logically speaking, and psychologically speaking, because psychology tends to follow logic. The tendency is, of course, in no way an inevitability, and that I tried to stress in various ways. Uh, But the the mind tends to work uh, along the lines of of logic, blocked and distorted by pride and self-deception at all at all times. But still, let's see, let's follow the argument where where it leads. In the case of Nietzsche, of course, these consequences that morality has no truth and that human beings are not, in any relevant sense, equal in dignity, uh, those conclusions were enthusiastically drawn. And his denials of those truths, which he made uh, consequent on his denial of the existence of God, has been found, uh, they, those denials have been found uh, persuasive. It's certainly true, as Geoffrey Stout uh, insisted and as I insisted in my own way, uh, so much so as to provoke Father Newhouse's doubts, that it's possible and indeed reasonable to affirm the truth of moral propositions or what Geoffrey Stout prefers to call virtues uh, without adverting to the existence of God and without holding it to be true that God exists and is of the nature that we describe gesture towards with thoughts such as transcendent. It's true. That's, that's possible. It's more difficult uh, when the affirmation of the truth of morality is in question in in an environment where one has positively denied the existence of God, where one has the confidence to say all those claims about the existence of God were false. That's a more difficult position to maintain, but I I, I think it's it's logically possible, and indeed my my whole argument uh, developing a a theory of, of ethics in natural law and natural rights presupposes that it's possible to affirm the truth of moral propositions and of true virtues uh, without holding the existence of God or even adverting to it. Uh, What my paper was was trying to suggest uh, is that uh, there is a rational instability in that position, and the paper can't fully argue argue for that. Uh, The rational instability, I suggest, shows itself, I said, in... Failure amongst those who deny the existence of God or set it aside, failure to strenuously explicate the truth of moral judgments against widespread, indubitably widespread, skepticism. All of us meet every year, our students come fresh out of high school or come fresh out of university into graduate school fully endowed with the the certainty that value judgments are, of course, value judgments, known, therefore, as purely relative, not the matter of truth, but of uh, assent as a result of emotion or cultural formation. I haven't found in my teaching experience over 40 years that my secularist, in my sense, colleagues strenuously... Uh, work to overcome this skepticism. And I haven't found in my 40 years of teaching my secularist colleagues strenuously working to explicate the truth that human beings are all radically and fundamentally equal. I didn't and I don't put the truth of human equality primarily on the basis that we're children or images of God I primarily put it in terms of uh, an account of soul as the form of the body and that is a truth I think accessible to natural reason whereas that we're made in the image of God uh, it it might be a way of putting what could be reached by natural reason but is certainly shaped thought shaped by, by revelation so I I can't deny uh, and didn't wish to deny and affirmed at various points in the paper uh, Geoffrey Stout's uh, proposition that uh, it's possible to be virtuous indeed even to be excellent without uh, believing in God or specifically in Christian revelation what I was interested in affirming is that those denials make the proposing of two vitally important truths uh, more difficult. Vitally important, not in the sense that I know that if they're not held, the society will descend into the abyss, or that when it, when it descends into the abyss, it's descending because of the denial of those propositions. I don't make either of those those claims. I don't pretend to understand the flow of history in, in that Kind of way. I don't uh, deny, therefore, Father Newhouse's uh, thought that in some sense civic religion may, may be necessary, but I don't affirm it. Uh, it it's beyond my uh, range and competence to, to hold a, a view about that. I only want to look at the, at the connections which I think are primarily uh, in terms of rationality norms, leading the argument where it leads. Uh, and add to that, as I have added, uh, my experience uh, in working amongst philosophers, uh, which is an experience of their secularism rendering weak or even absent the defense of what rationally needs to be defended. Those two truths about the common good there is right and wrong. There are virtues. It's not all relative. Value judgments are not mere value judgments, but are truths. And human beings really are equal.
0: Thank you, Professor. Uh, we, we have only a few moments for questions. So I'd like to follow the uh, procedure yesterday, which would be to collect several questions from the floor and then uh, to, uh, to invite the panelists in turn to respond. Right. Yes, sir.
5: Um, I, I'd just like to take Professor, Stout on his suggestion, um, take Professor Stout up on his suggestion that when we make political claims we explain the religious bases of them. And I know my own position on the controversial political question of abortion has a lot to do with the Talmudic principle that before the end of the first trimester, the moral status of a fetus is akin to that of water. Uh, Itself a commentary on the passage in Leviticus in which one who uh, hits a pregnant woman in the stomach, causes her to miscarry, has to pay a fine. uh, And if the woman dies, he has to pay with the penalty of death. Um, And this theological basis, I presume, for my particular commitment on this question, is one that won't prove particularly convincing to the first three panelists who uh, disagree with me on this particular political question. Now, presumably, uh, according to Professor Finnis, there's some sort of rational error in this moral conviction of mine, which might have something to do with the misidentification of the uh, Needed revelation going on in the Fertile Crescent two thousand years ago, seeing it as somehow going on in the debates of the Pharisees. Um, but nonetheless, I was wondering what sort of conversation people who hold such radically different theological bases for radically different political convictions can have, if not a conversation that can be described in one way or another, and certainly not in john rawls 's way, as a secular conversation.
0: Thank you. Uh, If you could make note of that, and we'll uh, collect a few more questions and then turn to the panelists. Shauna.
2: Thank you. This is a very important occasion for us uh, to to engage in a discussion about uh, a matter with some of uh, Anglo-Americans' great minds. And so I do hope that you take this question seriously uh, because it's foundational. and it's posed to both uh, Professor Finnis and uh, to Professor Stout. Uh, to Professor Finnis, I would ask, uh, what is the evidentiary basis upon which you operate for presuming that there is no God? And to Professor John Finnis, what is the evidentiary basis upon which you operate for presuming that there is?
0: Are there any other questions? <laughs> Uh, Let me go up top, please.
6: (laughs) The two largest democracies in the world, India and the U.S. Um, India professes to be secular. Uh, U.S., I'm not sure what label to put on it. But uh, in the U.S., um, In God We Trust is in many public places. Uh, President Reagan tried to uh, uh, impose a one-minute pray rule. Uh, President Bush has attempted to to fund some religious activities under the, um, I'm not sure exactly what he labels it, but uh, uh, in terms of public service. Uh, What kind of labels can we use for these two democracies? One already has been labeled as secular. The U.S., I'm not certain. And also, what does it impose on us in terms of whether this is a Faith-based uh, imposition of a one-minute rule, or is is it a uh, secular imposition of uh, wanting people to pray?
0: All right, I appreciate mention of the one-minute rule, and uh, perhaps one more question over to the side. Yeah. The, the, yes. Okay. Right. Go ahead. Maybe two. Two.
7: Thank you. If I were to ask everyone in this room, what is your birth date? you would not hesitate a moment and you would give me the date in which you first drew your first breath. But if today's conference were being held in Tokyo or Seoul, universities, or many of the great centers of learning in Asia, and I would ask that question, there would be a moment of pause and then there would be counting back from the first day of breath to the day of inception. Now, the nine months difference is a question I think that only Solomon or God can answer, and I don't think either can answer that to us directly. So therefore, the faithful and the secularists, why not frame the debate instead of something uh, other than, occurring prior to or i should say frame the question so the uh, the question is one uh, prior to the delivery room or the back alley and that is really where the answer lies rather than saying or denying that the answer lies on, only with the woman to make that decision
0: Thank you. And, and since I neglected to enforce the Madison rule of taking student questions first, I noticed a student question in the front. So let's add one more and then we'll uh, then we'll turn to the panel.
7: Um, Professor Jerry Stout and John Fennis, I see that, um, as she already mentioned, you uh, deny the existence of God. And then I see that John Fennis says that it's possible to have moral absolutes. I don't know if I'm right, but I think that's what you said, to have moral absolutes without a God. So I just wanted to see if both, um, first if uh, Dr. Stott could say um, how he believes in in moral absolutes without God, and then if you you say it's possible, how would you say it's more, um, uh, how the theory would be even more uh, interesting than the the theory of uh, uh, morals based on God? I don't know if if that sounded. uh,
0: Thank you. Gentlemen, if I can invite you to respond, uh, recognizing that we are already in overtime, and and, and so respond for a couple minutes at what you think would be the most salient points. Uh, Why don't we go in reverse order? Uh,
4: Professor Stapp. Me first. First, in response to uh, Mike Fraser's question, The the part of it that I think is directed to me is just the ending of it. What sort of conversation can we have? Well, it it seems to me that part of where the Rawlsian position goes wrong is in the requirement that reasoning about constitutional essentials and matters of basic justice in the public forum on, on Rawls' view Must proceed from principles that no reasonable person could reasonably reject. And it seems to me, if that's your starting point, you're going to place undue constraints on what can be said in public. The way we're going to make progress in finding out what, on what grounds our interlocutors as fellow citizens uh, rest their own. Moral and political conclusions is by encouraging them to express those grounds insofar as they consider this appropriate. The price of this is that what they say will then be subjected to criticism in public. You have to think about this. Do you, is this what you want? Okay? And what we assume then is that something like mutually imminent criticism will occur in public. That is to say, We will each, as Professor Finnis and I have already done in public today, display some of our premises and begin the process of testing one another's views, as well as our own, for coherence and for um, other important intellectual virtues. It is absolutely crucial for the conversation to proceed with virtues Embodied as well as in mind, <laughs> that is to say, for the various part this is why I said at the ending of my paper, I said it's absolutely crucial for the relevant people to first reflect on the virtues of practical wisdom and civility and then speak as they please okay uh, that's a lot to ask for. can we manage it? I think we often have in American history i 'm I'm so happy that Abraham Lincoln, when he gave the second inaugural address, did not first read Rawls' theory of justice <laughs> or political liberalism and thus consider himself constrained when talking on a matter that does, in fact, have relevance to constitutional issues and matters of basic justice. Uh, avoid revealing some of the premises, religious theological premises that he and many other Americans shared and held his fellow Americans to a very high standard of compassion and justice on the basis of those premises. I delight in this. That's one great model of the conversation that ought to be possible. Um, On what evidentiary basis do I reach my conclusions? Uh, Same as everybody else. Uh, Everything that um, we know about in terms of human experience, trying to uh, also careful reflection on the requirements of practical reasoning and theoretical reasoning, um, all of that. Uh, I just, in the end, don't come up with what might be called a restrictive view of rationality. I borrow uh, that I would borrow the term. A permissive conception of rationality from the great Catholic philosopher of science, Bas von Frassen, who is my good friend and a colleague on this faculty. Um, according to von Frassen, uh, the best arguments within the theory of rational entitlement tend to lead toward a rather permissive view of what rational entitlement consists in which means that it's possible for two people, only at most one of whom could be right, to be rationally entitled to their differing views on matters which are hard to discover the truth about. That's the alternative that's left out in the set of alternatives that Professor Finnis gave us. Right? It's it's possible for certain questions to be objectively difficult in such a way that it's hard for us to find the truth about them, even when they are of supreme importance to us. And some recognition of our finitude on these matters and our fallibility as knowers would go a long way, it seems to me.
3: That's all I can handle
0: without Thank taking you. too much yeah. time. Thank you. Um, Father Newhouse, a word?
3: Well, let me give my time to Professor Finnis, who I think has <clears throat> the more challenging task. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Frank, uh, you, I'm going to keep you, my time.
2: <laughs> I, I want to make a, a few comments about uh, uh, this gentleman. You raised the question. You brought up the... Uh, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand it, if you were to offer this biblical argument in the public square, most people would not be persuaded by it. Is that No, it, it's specifically
5: because... Yeah.
2: I think there's a couple of ways to look at one you mentioned it was from originally from Leviticus actually it's exodus chapter twenty uh and uh it's uh twenty one thank you well, there you go now, th- th- this is this, th- this is proof that that uh, verse this, uh, callib- uh, callib- <laughs> is, is correct receive, the oh okay yeah, like like the Catholics yeah. Just kidding <laughs> just, uh, just a, that's justice uh, I mean, supposing um, my thinking on this, I'm supposing you would offer the argument that, um, as the argument goes, there, uh, that there's a, only a penalty if it, this is the one interpretation uh, that's, that's been dominant in the literature, that two men fight. And if the fetus dies as a result of that, it's simply a fine. Whereas if the woman is harmed, it's a penalty that would apply to individuals that are already born. Now, one could argue that supposing I have an independent grounds, a good philosophical argument that makes the point that the fetus is in fact a person, I may then have to go back and see whether my interpretation of Exodus is in fact correct. I mean that's that's the way I, I sometimes look at these issues. Uh, I actually think that there's a there's actually another tradition uh, in Kyle and Dalich's uh, commentary on this. They make a, they have a different uh, view of the uh, word for uh, which is sometimes tr- translated miscarried. Uh, it's also translated um, premature birth. And so there is there is a dispute. And so one could argue that if I'm not sure of the hermeneutic on this case, I may for, I may as well take my Philosophical argument, which I may have better grounds for. Uh, Robert Audi, uh, ph- who's a philosopher at Notre Dame, calls this uh, theo-ethical equilibrium. It sounds a lot like uh, reflective equilibrium, but I think there's something to it that sometimes, uh, as as believers, uh, we have to uh, so, sort of open ourselves up to contrary arguments. As far as how that works in the public square. Um, even though I was critical of Rawls in my comments, I do believe that strategically and tactically it's probably not a good idea if you're going to make an argument, especially on an issue like as contentious as abortion, to offer explicitly um, theological arguments. Now, then that opens up the question of what counts as a theological argument. I mean, suppose I offer an argument uh, for the unborn's personhood that, uh, is part of a tradition that argues that human beings are fundamentally substances. That is, human beings are not wholly material entities. That They are, in fact, that there's a sort of immaterial core of who we are that has certain immaterial properties. Now, one could argue, well, that sort of view fits much better in a theistic worldview because a theistic worldview allows for the existence of immaterial things like moral claims and so forth. Um, But I don't think that's a... I think when, when, when people are thinking of religious arguments, they're thinking of arguments like the Bible says this. But if I offer an argument that happens to have conclusions consistent with the theological point of view, I don't think that's a theological argument. It's an argument with premises that anyone could see, reject, accept, or whatever, uh, even though the conclusion may be more comfortable in a worldview or a comprehensive doctrine that happens to be theistic. Um, Thank you,
0: Frank. So... Professor Finnis, you have the last word.
1: Well, on, on this question, I, I, I agree with almost everything I think that Geoffrey uh, Stout said, said in response to the, to the question. Uh, uh, as I, that passage of Aquinas that I quoted, when you're talking to people who don't accept religious authority, you have to rely on what he, said, what he calls natural reason. that's to say any other kind of reason that, that meets them where they, where they are. And that's the, fundamentally the only way in which discourse can can proceed. Uh, foot, footnote here, uh, Rawls's doctrine is not just about discourse. That's the sort of easy part of it. The hard part of it, about it it's about you shouldn't proceed to on, on the basis of your uh, beliefs if they're not within the, within the consensus. So maybe yours might happen to be within the consensus, but that's just good, your good luck. Mine aren't, and so I can't, uh, can't vote for, uh, my view on Rawls's view. That's that what I think is really objectionable about Rawls's. Rawls' view, I think the problem of discourse is, as it were, secondary. Uh, What uh, Francis Beckwith just said about a kind of, which meets up with what Geoffrey Stout said about a kind of immanent criticism of each other's views, uh, is, is, I think, right. That confronted with a a claim that such and such is revealed in such and such a, a doctrine of revelation, one doesn't have to just radically challenge the view that this is revelation up front, one may never never get, and probably in the situation of discourse, one will never get to to that uh, question, although logically it's fundamental. What one can legitimately do is probe uh, the the tradition on its own terms, and one can point then to other Jewish theologians who who hold a different interpretation and ask, are you so sure that their theology of the same uh, revelation, assuming the same truth, that this is the true revelation?" Uh, is not the uh, right theology. And uh, there are such Jewish theologians, and, and you can point to them. And some of them, like Rabbi De- David Novak, are theologians whose own view has uh, manifestly been informed by this immanent theological criticism of their own tradition, critique, uh, appropriation of their own tradition, informed by philosophical or nat- natural reason about the nature of the being that we're, that we're dealing with here Uh, What what I would like to say in in relation to to, uh, the the question of the existence of God and uh, in relation to what Geoffrey Stout said about it, namely uh, that we ought to be very conscious that some questions are difficult, and I think he implied so difficult that they can't uh, be answered with reasonable certitude, and that uh, that, that there are permissive and restrictive views of rationality, what I'd like to say about that is it's of first importance not to remain on the sort of meta level that, uh, that Geoffrey Stout was operating there, in which one's trying to think about rationality and kinds of rationality and the kinds of rational entitlement. What's essential is to look at the subject matter of one's questions, one's actual questions, and pursue the questions in relation to the subject matter, not bother at this stage about the meta stuff, which is very derivative and presupposes the thoughts of philosophers about what the first order inquiries actually deliver. This is why, during my teaching career, uh, meta-ethics has, which was the name of the game when I began, has pretty much rightly disappeared, because smuggled into meta-ethics were always the first-order conclusions of the philosophers doing the meta-ethics about what can and cannot be rationally affirmed about right and wrong, about virtue and so forth. Uh, which means thinking about uh, what is good and uh, what is bad and and, and so forth. So in the relation to the existence of God, one has to press the questions. Uh, I've been looking for explanations in history or in psychology or in natural sciences, and here's another range of questions about where did all this come from and why does it have the intelligibility that it does. Let's see if pressing those questions generates an answer. Well, here are some offered answers. Oh, and there are some offered objections. Well, look at them. Don't flip out into the third order or meta level. Oh, oh, it's very difficult. Uh, Is this one of the questions that's so difficult that one can't answer it? Just get on with trying to answer it and do your best. That's all one can offer. Uh, I think, as I said, that really following the rationality norms which are neither permissive nor restrictive but urge you on what's the rationality norm one that says for example here's an example of one questions that seem intelligible about matters that seem important to get an explanation of usually in my experience have an answer unless it's clear for some reason that I can understand that an answer is not available That's a rationality norm. It's neither permissive nor restrictive. It's urging you on. It's saying the reasonable thing to do is to pursue the questions. Experience is the basis of one's assent to rationality norms of that kind. And I think, uh, as I've I've, uh, 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 exposed myself by uh, uh, professing, that if you follow the rationality norm of seeking an explanation where it can be found in relation to the existence of everything, you can rightly affirm the existence of the transcendent, transcendent God. In relation to whether we should uh, characterize our society as secular or faith-based or something like that, don't bother. We don't need a name. Uh, my claim was only that, Uh, secularist claims to be the proper domain of law and public policy are rationally criticisable and not to be accepted that doesn't mean we have to label ourselves non-secular or secular the the category is in in the last analysis not of, of that fundamental interest fundamental interest is in the question what sort of rights do people actually have and do those rights for example include a right to religious freedom get on with the question of answering those substantive questions. Is it possible to answer them without affirming the existence of God? Well, I said several times, yes, it's possible, but it's insecure, because the same rationality norms that lead you through the difficult, yes, work of doing ethics also urge you into the difficult, yes, uh, question of the explanation of everything. And if you make the judgment, as I do, that there is uh, one set of answers, and they are continuous to those questions, and the, that there is both ethical truth and human equality and existence of God, then, having answered the question that way, you will understand as defective in reasonableness, defective, not irrational, uh, answers which claim to go some of the way and then say, but no further.
0: Well, that's a perfect last word, I'm afraid, but insofar as one can be offered on the subject, uh, let me invite you back at 2 o'clock for a panel on economics and secularism, and please join me in thanking the panelists this afternoon. Wow, that was a really terrific exchange and a really terrific panel, and I'm grateful to uh, Dr. Venus, uh, Professor Stout, Father Newhouse, and Dr. Beckwith uh, for being with us today to offer those reflections and to engage with each other so splendidly. I have an announcement. I uh, wasn't able to be here at the beginning, and I'm not sure if Dr. Sugru made the announcement, but we have a change of program. Now, nothing in the time or place. We're back here at 2 o'clock, and indeed, the subject matter re- remains the same, which is uh, a panel on economics and uh, secularism. However, Uh, Due to misunderstanding, uh, Dr. Kudlow will not be here to present the main paper, but fortunately we have Dr. Mueller, John Mueller, uh, who's going to be giving uh, the main uh, paper uh, with a response by Father Robert Sirico. So same topic, uh, same time, same place, uh, but it it will be uh, uh, John Mueller. So uh, see you in a little uh, over an hour.